But, uh, this is the book that, sorry, hello everybody. This is the book that, uh, that I wrote here a couple of years ago, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, an urgent appeal to fellow Christians in a time of social crisis. And uh, me and a colleague, Dara Miller, wrote a book called A Toxic New Religion, Understanding the Postmodern Neo-Marxist Faith that Seeks to Destroy the Judeo-Christian Culture of the West. Um, if you want those, uh, I've got them on a special price for you today, $10 and $5, and there's an envelope. You can just make your own change. Um, so please, even if you want to buy one for a friend, I would love that. And then a little bit about our organization. I got We have... Uh, our core training is uh, free and online. You can learn more about it with some brochures back there. So thanks. Yeah. I have not read the one with the fist on it yet, but I have read the other. Uh, it's an excellent book. Very helpful. Uh, in fact, our our elders are using it uh, in when we meet for our session meetings. We're reading through it together. Uh, very helpful. Um, and thank you, Scott, for doing that work, um, and uh, I'm sure you would find it helpful as well. Um, <clears throat> we transition now to, um, I'll bring it up here, I'll have to change my screen, um, but the, um, the next section, session is, I'll get it to come up here, all right, <clears throat> evaluating where we are. Scott, of course, has uh, given us some background uh, as to how we got here, and there's a lot more to say, and maybe in our sessions this afternoon, some of the things Scott didn't get to, uh, he could bring out for us, and, um, but now, uh, where are we now, um, and, and in particular, where are we now, especially as it's impacting us as a church? We could, as I mentioned earlier, spend time talking about how it's impacting our schools or impacting the courtrooms or impacting politics. Um, but we can't cover everything, and I'm sure we'll touch on some of these things. Uh, but we're going to now have the privilege of hearing from Pastor Jesse, and uh, he's going to start by giving us a little bit of background uh, about himself and uh, his story. If you've read Vody Bauckham's book, uh, he gives a rather lengthy uh, time in the book about his story, and uh, Jesse has some similarities there, and uh, so it'll be uh, good to hear from him. And uh, I'm just so thankful to hear from someone who is a brother in the Lord and has had a very different uh, experience than I've had. And, uh, and how these things impact me is one thing, and us here in, in Western PA, but to hear uh, from someone from another part of the country, and uh, I was right in the middle of it there in the Bay Area in the minority community and trying to minister there, um, very much um, we have this privilege of, of hearing from Pastor Jesse. Um, I will say this as uh, before I hand the mic over, as it were, uh, this past Monday, uh, Jesse has a radio program. It's uh, KFAX, right? KFAX.com. And so he invited Scott Allen and myself to be part of that program. And uh, I believe you can listen to it here after the fact, right? You have a, a recording of it. And uh, so we uh, joined with him the other day. It was uh, just it was a good time. I um, just... Every time I talk with these gentlemen, it's an encouragement. So 
Uh, I'm sure it'll be uh, the same for uh, all of us here today. So uh, enough of me. Pastor Jesse, uh, please come and, and share with us. Well, I want to say good morning to all of you again. Uh, glad to be with you um, and to be with your pastor and to be with Scott Allen. Um, I am Jesse Gistan. My wife, Barbara, is with me as well over there. Uh, the phenomenal woman of eight children we have uh, raised together uh, of ourselves um, and 12 grandchildren as well. Um, and uh, you, might not, you might not believe this, but I'm not black, I'm white. And so is she. According to today's upside down, inverted, uh, irrational knowledge premise. Um, I want to first off say that you guys have a, a very special pastor. Um, Pastor Scott Fleming is special in many ways, much more uh, you know it, but for him to be concerned about the matters that are going on in this world in relationship to the church is, um, is uncommon. Um, I could pick up right where Scott Allen spoke about the uh, query that uh, uh, Mr. Metaxas was talking about the pastors uh, during the time of the emergence of Hitler, where there were some uh, 12,000 pastors, I believe, that were silent, silent or matters wherein the church should have spoken up very clearly and very biblically concerning the evil that was taking place at that time. And I think if I were to pick up with the uh, PowerPoint, where are we now? That's where we are now. We are in a time where the church largely is silent. That's where we are. So let me just start a little bit just to give you a little background to make makes some of you maybe a little bit more comfortable with myself. Obviously, I'm African-American, as is my wife. Uh, if we would take on a biblical worldview and believe in biology and science, which we do, um, and we're from the San Francisco Bay Area, but not quite San Francisco. We are across the water in much more milder territory, if you will, um, and we've been there all of our lives. Um, and I'm the pastor of Grace Bible Church in Hayward, California, which is about 20 minutes away from San Francisco. Been pastoring Grace Bible Church for now about 27 years. I've been in the faith for 40 years, as well as my wife. We grew up in the Christian Reformed Church that is a kind of historically sister church in terms of Reformed theology. We are very well versed in the three forms of unity. I don't know if you know about that. You should. And we are well form, uh, versed in the, um, the, um, the confessions of the Presbyterian Church as well, the Westminster Confession. Know a lot of Presbyterian brothers across the nation as well as in California. And I'll just let you know, if you've never been to California, there are a handful of believers in California. Okay, I mean, you, you might think, you know, what good can come out of Nazareth? Well, there are a few good things that come out of Nazareth as well. And Scott's not that far from us. Either. And I would say that as I begin to talk, I could talk to you guys 
for hours about where we are and about what we've gone through as a nation and about um, what we need to be doing um, because we all have our unique experiences, but they're also commonly shared experiences with which we must never allow the adversary to dictate to us what we see, hear, or believe. What we see, hear, or believe. That's why I gave you the little quip about me being white. Because if you listen to the power brokers that are basically pushing this socialist neo-Marxist agenda, which is called relativism, if you know it, um, they would have you to redefine everything according to their playbook. This is what... Um, this is what our, our brother uh, Vody Bauckham described as uh, neo-Gnosticism. It's a, it's a cajoling of words and phrases and terms because they really are postmodernists who think that they can create reality by defining it in terms of rhetoric and speech and language dynamics. Uh, but we must not fall for it at all. We must not fall for it. For me, it all started largely what's going on today in 2016, but I can tell you it goes way back further than that. I might even say 2001, 2001. You guys remember what happened on 9-11, 2001. Do you guys remember that? Some of you guys are babies, but you may remember. 9-11 actually created for me a paradigm shift in that it aroused me to the fact that uh, the propaganda that we were all used to that America was so great that it was impenetrable by evil forces. When we saw the Twin Towers go down, my eyes opened up to a level of reality around the capacity for evil to penetrate into our country and help us understand our own fragility, our own vulnerability, our own capacity for harm. It opened my eyes. I was a pastor then as well, obviously. And what it did, it, it shifted my focus slightly, not from the gospel, not from the proclamation of the kerygma, not from the teaching of the whole word of God. I'm going to show you some of that today because I became much more committed to demonstrating that the Bible speaks to everything in life and that the notion that somehow we were to live on a reservation of sort of a theological hybrid, the world over here, the church over there, or on a kind of um, uh, there is a dichotomy between religion and politics, which a lot of us bought into because we wanted to keep peace. So when you buy into a notion that politics is over here and religion is over there, you inadvertently or maybe unwittingly submit to a false notion of your God. That is to say, if God is who he says he is, if he's the God of all creation, if he's the God of the universe, if he's the sovereign Lord that sits on the throne, he runs everything, politics, religion, culture, Everything. He is the God of it all. And the Bible that we have in front of us is a Bible that speaks to all issues. At that point, it became very prominent, uh, pertinent for me to begin to address the issue of worldviews. Because I think that that's the weakness in our churches. So you have a pastor that's very eloquent, very knowledgeable, very relevant. So is Scott. Uh, 
I might also add that I've done quite a bit of missionary work. And when you do missionary work, you have a much more salient worldview because you see the commonalities across the nations and you see the disparities. It gives you a better picture of where our unity is and where it needs to go deeper. Sometimes when we're operating out of an isolated experience, as Scott had sort of hinted at, and I know this to be true, I know that there are some people in the South uh, who would never come to California because they're afraid that if the plane lands in California at the San Francisco airport, that one of those massive earthquakes is just going to take all of California and drop it into the ocean. So they will never come. I'm making a caricature, but these become problems with how we perceive the church and the body of Christ anywhere in the world. And we need to overcome fear and we need to overcome anxiety and we need to overcome propaganda and we need to overcome lies. There is a lot more unity among the people of God across the uh, nation and even across the world with regards to understanding where we are, if you could hear from them. So I do want to say that your pastor is allowing this congregation here, Rocky Springs, to actually be part of the global... Uh, awareness, the global assessment, and the global solution. So you should really be thankful because we can be myopically trapped in our own communities of faith and in our own communities and again be susceptible to ignorance at very problematic levels. And then when you get hit with reality, then you wake up to the fact that you don't have a foundation under you. This is often the way it is when a person who is lost finally comes to an awareness of his sinful condition and a revelation of the glory of God and the grace of God. It awakens him or her to the reality that their problem is not the exportation of sin, but the internal reality of sin. That's what the gospel does, right? It quickens you to the reality that you are the sinner. And that the problem begins in the human heart. And this has always been the truth since the fall of our first parents. I think where we are today is that we've gotten away from the gospel. We've gotten away from the relevance of the gospel. One person put it like this. The gospel used to be believed passionately, consistently, radically, evangelically, apologetically. And then over time, the gospel was fundamentally tolerated passively, kind of quietly under this era. I remember this era, and some of you do too. I'm going to kind of push into the young people a little bit because we've got a lot of them in our church, and I love to talk to them about these things. But there was a time when all we heard for decades was tolerated, 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 tolerated. Do you guys remember that? Tolerated. Well, toleration is a model for allowing the seeds of evil to grow over in the field across the street and not knowing that when they reap their harvest, the winds would blow the pollen over to your side of the field and eventually it would take root in your own field as well. And that's because we tolerated it. Do you remember that? And now we're being told not to tolerate it, but to embrace it at the pain of punishment. This is how evil actually grows in a society because the church fails to understand what its role is. 
So I say it everywhere because I do a talk radio program every Monday. It's called Lifeline. Alan talked about it. Scott talked about it. Uh, and we are on a broadcasting system called uh, Salem Broadcasting. It's all over the world. It's one of the bigger Christian radio stations, and you can find us easily. I've been preaching for 40 years as well, and we're on the radio every day in, in, in California as well, so that up to 7 million people can listen to us. So this particular pastor is one of those unique pastors that talks politics and religion on purpose. Because as you know now, politics is not passive. Politics is always in your business. It's in your economics. It's in your worldviews. It's in your education. It's in your entertainment. Scott showed you the whole list of the permeative elements of the neo-Marxist agenda in all these stratums that you and I have had to endure for many years. Now it's close up on us. It's in our universities in a bold, naked way, is it not? It's in our jobs. It's everywhere you go, and it didn't happen overnight. And that's what you and I need to know. It didn't happen overnight. Now, in terms of uh, Pittsburgh, uh, you guys may have enjoyed a bit of a bubble because uh, you are probably dominantly conservative, dominantly Republican in this area with, with just a few uh, what we might call um, surreptitious traitors infiltrating <laughs> the community here. Well, myself and my wife, we are uh, from probably one of the most liberal states in the union. <clears throat> and viscerally committed to Marxism at the highest levels. What that does not mean is that there are not many good communities of faith in California fighting the good fight of faith, of which one of them is our own local church in Hayward. We are a multi-ethnic church, so if you were to go online and look up Grace Bible Church in Hayward, California, you will find that, that we are multi-ethnic. We are not a black church. We are not a white church. We are a multi-ethnic church, and it's largely because of two things. One is we were intentional about the multi-ethnicity, meaning reaching our communities across the comfort levels of us being black and just reaching black people. I never had a vision of being like a black pastor of a black church. Uh, and God saw to it that that wouldn't happen. He was sovereign. And so when my wife and I were, were brought to a saving knowledge of Christ, he plucked us down in a good reformed community with all my Dutch brothers, and they were all white. <laughs> and when we started Grace Bible Church, um, after many years in the uh, Christian Reformed Church, the majority of the members in the church that I pastored were all white. So if you were to go back to our old archives, I think we had about 35 people, and uh, they were largely white, with the exception of my family and maybe one other. And we were Caucasian, lead, we were dominated uh, with our Caucasian brothers for several years until we realized that we were making a fundamental mistake around the nature of the gospel, even though we were solidly framed in Reformed theology, Calvinism, the historic faith as you and I would believe it and know it. It just didn't have the intentionality of evangelism that it should have. That's another story, but it is very relevant here in this sense that had I not gone after 
uh, as a pastor in my, my, my uh, leadership, our, our elder board and deacons had not gone after wanting to have a multi-ethnic congregation. We would not have known the beauty of the unity of the faith across different ethnic groups. And that becomes a problem for everybody. Meaning that until you and I get close enough to see how much we have in common, the distance between us becomes a liability around propaganda and storytelling that you can't validate, validate without experience. Does that make some sense? That's probably one of the good sides of universities. All of our kids, for the most part, have done universities, gotten their degrees and stuff, and have come out fundamentally unscathed. Although when you put your kids in college, they're going through a meat grinder because socialism is absolutely prominent in our colleges. It would be better that our kids go in fully grounded in the word of God, totally knowledgeable about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not, and committed to being uh, prophetically uh, ready to defend the gospel and priestly ready to reconcile with any sinner who wants to come to the Savior that we know and love. So I teach in the Bay Area two fundamental primary purposes of the church. It is called to be prophetic. It is not called to be silent. It is also the call to be priestly. So we're not seeking to start a fight. But what we're not doing is being ashamed of the gospel because we believe it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. But we also believe in the radical centrality of Christ's mediatorial work as our great high priest. We believe in reconciliation. So we go after that. What that means is we have to know how to stand for truth and listen to people at the same time and be ready to engage them where they are and find the commonalities among us and then hopefully build a bridge between us and them so that they, by the sovereign mercy of God, might find Christ nearer to them than they presently believe. Because he's not far away from any one of us. Because we're all intersectionally one thing. Sinners. That's what we have in common. We're sinners. And I teach it all the time. It started for me in 2016, however, uh, I, got, I was ramped up in my uh, commitment to uh, the gift of radio ministry because I, I get a chance to speak to hundreds of thousands of people every day. And when the election took place um, of Joe Biden and that whole fiasco emerged right in front of our eyes as an optic of absolute horror, uh, relative to the process, to the methodology, to the confusion and chaos, and then the confluence of what many of us know was a very, very um, bold and open and, and hostile um, sort of um, confession that we're going to have it our way no matter what our laws say relative to the voting rights. And you and I saw something happen for which many people are afraid to be honest about it. It was an absolutely fraudulent election. Amen. 
of, 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 of proportions that cannot even be fully explicated at this time, okay? Uh, I should also say that as a pastor in the Bay Area, I am involved with people who are actual politicians, with lawyers, with doctors, with scientists. So I, I have my hands relatively on the pulse of both views, okay? I'm not so far back that I don't get a sense of the struggles, uh, and so I've been fortunate that way for many decades. I know people in the FBI, the CIA. I know people in the military at high levels. And so that's been a joy to get their feedback and insights. And one of the things that really pushed me into dealing with the critical race theory is that I'm starting back at the, um, at the Biden um, takeover. I'm starting there. Because at that time, there was a confluence of a propaganda that was fundamentally uh, um, forged to create more instability in our societies across the nation, and it was called Black Lives Matter. There was a conflation of the, the uprising of all kinds of evils around George Floyd, as you guys know. At the same time, the elections were taking place. So what this was is a heightened tension on the part of everybody. Everybody was in overload in their limbic system, emotionally and psychologically and physiologically. And we were really struggling with what's going on in our country and our world. The world was watching us. Because many parts of the world depend on America to be one of the last vestiges that understands its constitutional rights and blessings. That understands freedom. And so I had to actually begin to talk about what freedom is from a theological standpoint, from a political standpoint, from a sociological and psychological and spiritual standpoint. And I had to help our community understand that you cannot separate political freedom from spiritual freedom. It's not possible because the sovereign Lord rules over all the magistrates, over all the kings, over all the rulers on the planet. You guys know that. And, and he, 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 he raises up whom he wills and he sets down whom he wills in order to achieve his goal and his purpose. And what was occurring at the time was a, um, a, a very dark, dark sort of uh, surge around critical race theory that was almost, almost threatening. It was almost thuggish, almost thuggish. And it was painful to see it happening um, uh, both in terms of my Caucasian brothers and sisters, and I use that term in general. I don't have to know you to know that, that you are my Caucasian brother or sister on a human level, and that matters, uh, to see that there was a wholesale indictment of a people group, as Alan had talked about, for which the per capita individual was completely eradicated from the uh, opinion uh, of whether or not they are guilty of racism. And so we, again, are, are dealing with doublespeak, are we not? Because whole groups are condemned while the individual is ignored, right? Ignored, but not ignored because you are punished as guilty, because of your skin color, which how superficial is that for one to look at you and assert that you are a white person because of your skin color? I had an elder in our church and me and him had a, a real funny little secret. If you had seen him, he's not a member now, but if you looked at him, he looked Caucasian. His granddaddy was completely African-American. 
And so he knew that he was African-American as well. But how many of us are so many things at once? The notion that everything is to be reduced down to white and black means that we are not dealing with the principal meaning of ethnic groups, but rather, again, a play on terms. Whiteness is anything that is described as having power to oppress. And blackness is anything that describes those who are the oppressors. And as Alan had stated, he laid it out so very clearly, there's a hierarchy in the oppressed group, and it pays to be oppressed. And for our Caucasian brothers, so this is called the grievance group over here. The grievance group are the oppressed groups. They can, they can get um, all kinds of benefits from professing to be grieved. They can get free college tuition. They can get passes on all kinds of levels. They can get access to jobs. They can be freed from prison on crimes that they commit that used to be real felonies but now are called misdemeanors. So the grievance folks can actually uh, benefit out of grieving even though they don't have any substantial personal grounds for grievance other than that they are part of a grievance group. Does that make sense? All right, so Exodus chapter 23, don't go there unless you want to. You can write it down. This is all recorded. I do this a lot. Verse 2 tells us you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. You shall not follow a multitude to do evil. Now, what Allen was talking about, Scott, again, Scott Allen was talking about was the power dynamic that underbeds this agenda, that this is all about power. Well, if it's all about power and you buy into it, then naturally men and women are going to side with power, particularly if you're part of the weak group. Does that make some sense? This is psychological bondage. Because now you are empowered to be weak. What a paradox. You are empowered to be weak. And empowered to be weak, now you can punish people with a power that you never had before. You woke up one day on top and everybody else is on bottom. Now, ladies and gentlemen, and particularly you young people, because we got hundreds of them in our church. We got a lot of young people in our church, and, and I speak to them every week. It's going to be your job going forward to fight against these things at every stratum of society. Because us old folk are tired. We, we didn't fought our battles. We're done. I'm just letting y'all know now. I'm letting you know now. Older people will think about it. They'll pray about it. They'll give. They will give you. They'll give you the, the money they have. But they're not going to be out there fighting those battles. Those kind of battles are fought by young people. That's why I fought it when I was young. The Lord called me at 19 years old, as well as my wife. And I've been fighting these battles as a young man. I'm older now. I'm 61, almost 62. So we're about to pass this down to our kids and our young ministers in our church. And they're already passionately committed to the task. Several of them are military men. Our elders are military men. And they're fighting this in the military. Some of our, our elders are uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, at least retired law enforcement, and they're fighting it there too. Others are in the medical field, and they're fighting it in the medical field. The church, if the question is, where's the church in these matters, the church largely is silent. It's silent. I'm here to let you know it's silent. I remember, again, back in 2016, and our church was, we have a large representation of um, African Americans, obviously, um, and uh, a very healthy mix of everything else. 
Okay, from Indian to Asian to Latino to all of your cultures, Filipino, et cetera, et cetera. All of our grandkids are mixed, okay? Because their husbands are Christians. It didn't matter whether they were black or white. It mattered that they were Christians that we married our daughters off to. So our children are beautiful Blasian and Blavatorians and, and then all of the other mix in between. Right. So just letting you know. And this is something I had to deal with many years ago when I was uh, um, when I was traversing America doing ministry with largely my Caucasian brother in, in the Reformed faith, particularly the Reformed Baptist churches across uh, America. Many of them, Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, et cetera, across of the Bible Belt. And they were all Caucasian. So I'm preaching in Caucasian churches and I'm realizing that I'm seeing some deficiencies at the sociological level. And I had to challenge my sovereign grace brethren around that. Why is it down the street that our African-American churches are down there worshiping and they actually are Calvinists? They are actually reformed. How come we are not cross-pollinating? Right? And that got me kicked out fundamentally of my reformed Baptist and sovereign grace brethren community because they weren't willing to take on the difficulty of becoming more like Christ than they wanted to. Now, I know this is a little challenging, but this is not challenging at all to the young people. It's challenging to some of us who are older, who are used to safety, but young people are made for war. They're made for these battles. They're made for breaking through parameters and boundaries. They're made for this. Moreover, the gospel is made for this. The gospel is made for this. So when you and I are called to not follow the multitude to do evil, the, the inverse of that, the inference to that is that you and I are important as individuals and that God changes societies through individuals. He changes cultures through individuals. I teach a very Christocentric message from Genesis to Revelation. Everything is about our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. But its application is through the church. All the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of the Father by the church on the part of Christ's sake. Meaning by the church does the gospel get out and God affirms his promises by drawing men and women from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. Does that make some sense? Right. Now there's a devil that hates that. And if I were to lay a fr framework to where we are, we are really dealing with the Genesis 3, 1 through 7 narrative. And I'll just give you a couple of uh, thoughts around that. Genesis 3, verse 1 is your first example of postmodern fantasy reimagining of what the text says. The devil is the great liar. He's the father of it. And he is an anarchist. And his son is Marx. And what they do is they foster lies by taking the truth and inverting it and denying its essential, simplistic, theological meaning. Very simple. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? No, 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 says the serpent. Says Marx, says neo-Marxism, you won't die. You'll become just like God's knowing good and evil. You see how conflated, convoluted, and how deceptive he is? You see the parallels with where we are today? The simplicity of biblical truth, however, is not being 
fostered and communicated by the people of God with a radical enough militancy because it's the simplicity of biblical truth that grounds men and women in reality. It is the complex, over-sophisticated uh, over era of falsehood to embed in biblical concepts, lies, and distortions, and actually anti-truths, as Jordan P. B. Peterson puts it, an anti-truth is extremely dangerous because it not only not agrees with the truth, but it brings in a contrary truth as a substitute or a usurper of, uh, of the biblical truth, which alone can save us. Now, the first uh, postmodernist then is the devil. The first uh, woke uh, individuals are our parents, Adam and Eve. They were awakened to a lie. Do you guys remember the account? He says, but if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be what? Opened. These are the first two woke people. They were awakened to the reality that they were naked and that they were operating now not out of a faith based on love rooted in a sovereign God who was their covering, but now they're operating out of fear of God and running from him and had God left them in that state we'd all been woke people running from God on the way to hell if he didn't hunt us down in his grace and restore us in the solution that he gave Adam and Eve which is the solution that the whole world needs which is the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ represented by the shedding of blood and the covering of coats that he put around our first parents to give us a paradigm for all history. Our problem is sin. Our solution is Christ. That will never change. Our problem is sin. Our solution is Christ. And whenever we seek another path, as you guys know, as the Proverbs lays it out, there is a way that seems right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of what? Death. That's Marxism. That's what Alan was demonstrating. As Marxists always take up the notion of a utopian society, it is always at the expense of God, at the expense of God's word, at the expense of God's ways, and the outcome is never a utopia, as they would call it, a kind of heaven on earth where everybody gets along, but it's a dystopian lie of destruction. And this is what's been going on in humanity from the beginning. So please understand when Alan was talking about power dynamics, whenever people are grasping after power, ye are of your father, the devil and the works of your father, you will do. Does that make sense? And the reason they're grasping after power is because they don't have faith. Like when you have faith, which is rooted in the love of God, which is in Christ, you and I don't have to grasp after power. We already have it. Not only do we have it in the sense that God is all powerful and we have God who is all powerful, but he gave us the blessed third person. And the third person is the energizing power that grants the church relevance in the world through the word of God. That's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the dunamis of God. It can change lives. It can actually take brokenness and bring it back together. You guys do know that. So what we're dealing with with Marxism, neo-Marxism, is a false religion with a totalitarian premise under it that's actually forcing people into its system. It is not the true gospel at all. 
It is not gospel oriented at all. It doesn't liberate, it binds. It doesn't forgive, it holds in perpetual condemnation. When you meet them, ask them, when, when, when are my crimes against my African-American brothers going to ever end? Is there any forgiveness with that? Robin D'Angelo says, no, you're going to be guilty forever. That's called an anti-gospel. Do you understand that? That's an anti-gospel. It is so viscerally contrary to the free grace of God in Christ that you need to pick up on it right away. So, see, what I'm doing is trying to appeal to you to understand where our real problem comes in, brothers and sisters, is we have gotten away from the utilitarian nature of Scripture. Scripture used to be our complete science book. Now I'm speaking in the biblical sense of science, the gnosis, right? And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I'm one of those what is called presuppositional apologetics. So you know what that means? That means I start with the Bible and I finish with the Bible. Like you can't know anything until God tells you. You can't know science until God tells you. You can't know anything epistemologically until God gives you a certain knowledge of that thing. The rest of it is speculative. The rest of it is, is experimental. And God is good to the whole world. You guys know that. But what men come to know that are factually true are embedded in what God's word had already said. I'm not going off onto a rabbit trail with Darwinianism and all of that. Those are battles, again, however, that I think the church was way too silent on. Because we've got gifted men and women who have come up through really good universities and have been able to understand the biblical framework for creation and how to dismantle Darwin's theories of evolution and once again reassert the biblical narrative of creation and anthropology. And therefore, the teleos are the purpose of mankind. We should have been fighting these battles. But see, we've been quiet on this for a long time. So what we were told was, you church folks stay over there and just enjoy your quiet little Christian life when you come into the building. But once you go out the building, the domain of the secular environment is ours. You don't get to tell us what the Bible says. So we have shrunk away from a biblical worldview. And I, I put that challenge at my seminaries all across the world as to whether or not they actually believe that this Bible is the inerrant, infallible, veritable word of God or not. And that gets to the issue of faith, doesn't it? Because if the Bible is the word of God, then we're derelict in our duties. I'm, I'm getting at where our problem lies here. See, men and women will not communicate what they do not believe. So you haven't heard the, the, uh, the whole counsel of God preached in many communities in decades. Last time you heard a sermon on hell. I mean a series on it, not just a sermon. Right? These are extremely critical, important truths because if there's no hell, Christ died in vain. If Christ died in vain, then God's a liar and all of us are miserable. And we might as well join into the power system. See, this is a battle between the propaganda of power over against the proclamation of truth. It's a battle between power and truth. This is where relativism comes in at. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. Everybody got their own truth. The problem is that's not true, one. <laughs> Secondly, you can't have all of these diverse truths and they all be true, too. Either one of us is right and the other is wrong or we're all wrong. 
Now, this is fundamental and logic. This is not the law of non-contradiction. Y'all do know that, right? And so when you're being challenged with these things in school or with people out there in the street, here's another battle I'm going to talk about now just a little bit while I have your attention. And this is the battle of the freedom of speech. Our founding fathers got it right. Everything prospers when we're free to talk about it. Because God made us in his image. The Imago Dei is fundamentally the Imago Dei of Logos, the ability to speak and to communicate. This is what makes us different than the animals, ladies and gentlemen. We can reason, we can rationalize, we can discourse, we can dialogue. Now, when you can dialogue, you can set all issues on the table and begin to reason as to whether or not those issues are valid, plausible, or falsifiable, and, 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 and not worthy of any continence, especially to turn them into ideologies and into worldviews, into frameworks by which we can govern our society. We were a better society when we were able to debate these things. So when Alan was talking about that little Mexican sister coming up to him talking about, you shut up, let me just tell you what I'm, I'm thinking. That is one of the tactics of the Marxist system. He does not want debate. The reason why is truth will always win out in the day if you have a chance to debate it. God will always raise up savior motifs. I'm in the book of Judges right now. We're between the patriarchy and the monarchy. You guys know that. The book of Judges, 12 judges. And all the judges become a model of how God saves a culture from utter idolatrous abomination. Not by raising up large groups of people, but raising up one person at a time. Raising up one person at a time. And he gave them saviors. To deliver them from the idolatrous systems that had trapped them. I believe that's where we are in our world. And I certainly believe that's where we are in America. America is a neo-Israel type. I'm sorry. As well as the church. Because we have been blessed with a heritage that allows us to be a Judeo-Christian nation. At least in our jurisprudence. And then with the prominence of churches across the land. But as our brother had stated, you have to know this. The goal of Marxism is to get rid of everything that has anything to do with God. Now, if this is not 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, I don't know what is. When it says the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes everything that would exalt itself as God, and he exalts himself over against God, showing himself that he is God. And he works all kinds of lying signs and wonders. If, if what we're dealing with in terms of postmodernism operating in our media and our institutions is not lying signs and wonders, I don't know what it is. And I can, I can break that down scripturally and show you we are dealing with a perpetual, relentless flood of lies. And if men and women are not grounded in Christ, they get washed away in the flood. Is that true? That's where we are in our culture. So we're dealing with the emergence of the men of sin. So I don't mean to get into eschatology for those of you who know your Bible. I'm fundamentally a partial preterist. I'm an idealist. I actually am sympathetic to my postmodern, post-millennial uh, post, uh, brethren. But folks would say, Pastor, you sound much more like an amillennialist. Take your pick. <laughs> okay, we're still working it out. What I do know is that there have been epics throughout history where the men of sin rises up. Because of the darkness that prevails in the culture. And because of a shrinking back on the part of the church. 
As I said to our sister uh, earlier downstairs, you cannot have a passive church in any community that's going to stay relevant and vital being passive. Christians are not made to be passive. They're made to be lovingly stubborn. <laughs> Till death. Till death. The Christian must be willing to die for truth in order for truth to resurrect itself again in the next generation. What good is it calling yourself a Christian if you're not ready to die for Aletheia, for the Amen? You know your Old Testament says it, Amen. Let it be so, O Lord. What good is it if we're not ready to die for it? If we're not ready to die for it, then the Marxist, socialist Marxists have won, have they not? Because, see, they can push up on you and burn your buildings. And, and now we're at martyrdom lane, but we won't go there. We know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We know that when evil emerges to a certain threshold, that the only way to stop it is to be willing to lay down our lives. This is how the church has survived for 2,000 years. This is how it has changed communities. So where are we at now? We are at a time, ladies and gentlemen, where the world needs the church more than ever. But it needs real men and women who are committed to the glory of God and the person of Christ and the totality of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It is our wisdom. It's a wisdom without rival. It has always worked. Now, the reality is, is that we know that we have all sinned. We also know that we have had a horrible stain of racism in our country. Yes. We know that. You have to be careful to know where the, um, where the American government and the American people have worked hard to correct those matters. You got to know. You got to know that 1619, the 1619 Project was a lie. You got to know that. You got to know that the foisting up of this new propaganda to redefine history in a way that would erase all of the good efforts of Christian men and women and non-Christian men and women who have labored for freedom and human rights. You got to know the reality of those things. If not, you will bob your head to a lie and it will be out of not being a grievance person, but a guilty person. So you got two groups of people. You guys all right with me being passionate? You got two groups of people. You got your grievance group that's, you know, getting paid to pretend that they are so wounded that their great, 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 you get my point? Without any kind of variables in between great grandma to the 10th generation, any kind of variable of historical facts of any kind of reconciliation, restoration, uh, uh, remuneration, right? Any of that, as if none of that happened. On many occasions it did. We are still willing to do two things, however, as Christians. Say that I'm sorry for what my, my Caucasian, what my, my great-great-grandparents may have done, but that wasn't my fault. Because as the Bible says, God is no respecter of persons. The sins of the parents will not be placed upon the children. Did y'all get that? The sins of the parents will not be placed upon the children. As Ezekiel puts it, every man will bear their own sin. 
Now, I'm not talking about consequences of sin genetically, epigenetically, socially. All that works itself out, right? The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. But that would be true of all of us. I used to ear hustle in on my grandparents' conversations. And guess what I discovered that they were? Racist? No, black people can't be racist. Yes, they can. Take it from me. Oh, but you can't listen to me because I'm white. Yes, they can. I, I heard my, my grandparents doing the same thing that I heard Caucasian folks doing. Because it was very common in the day where you don't pay the price for watching what you say or thinking better of your neighbor. Are you guys keeping up with me? So it was very common in the day in our own houses to talk about them white folks. Them white folks. Like it would be common in, in the day for y'all to talk about them niggas or Negroes. Are colored people. As you got as you got further down the line past the civil rights movement, it was colored people. Y'all keeping up with me? But it was still an intrinsic defrauding of our neighbor as ourselves because it was less than Christian. But it went both ways. And I remember when we started growing at Grace and we were dealing with the multi-ethnic dynamic. The one thing I told our African-American brothers and sisters when I saw them becoming the more prominent ones, because we started actually being the majority in our church. I said to my brothers and sisters who are African-American, now you see what it feels like to be the minority in the group, be the majority in the group over against the minority. So be very sensitive to our non-black brothers and sisters in the church. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Right. Don't feel like just because 60% of us are black and 40% of us are other that you can talk down or talk bad or get over in the corner and use some of that old, you know, second and third generation language because in the Christian community that will not work. See, this is where I lost almost all of my Caucasian brothers to an environment and a culture where they weren't willing to go back and reestablish these rules. So, so it was very personal to me. It was very personal to me. And so again, as I share it with you, I and my wife were willing to put our mouth where our money was and our money where our mouth was when it came to our kids. So now, I clearly believe in science and I actually believe in the binary distinction between male and female. This is a male brother here. That's a female sister over there. And nothing's going to ever change that. We have eight children. Six of them are biological females. We know that for a fact. And two of them are biological males. But beyond that, the freedom for intermarriage is biblical. And if you fail to believe that, even though you're free not to do it, you're going to open the door for a distortion across many different categories. This is where the church really stumbled many, many Decades ago, as you know, but we're we've seen the influx over the decades, have we not? And we all have to continue growing and we all have to continue uh, becoming the best human being we possibly can be. And we all we need to do that per capita, meaning every person you meet, you must judge them on the merits of who they are. You cannot you cannot assume just because you look at them and, and then call them white or call them black or other, begin to judge them predicated upon their identity with a particular ethnic group. That would be unfair and would be unbiblical. 
So I've been teaching these things for a long time. So we have a wonderful community at Grace. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. That's what it means to be Christian. Christians are not perfect. And we should be quick to say that. We're saved. We're justified. We're sanctified. In Christ, we're perfect. In ourselves, we're sinners. Does that make some sense? Right? We're simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. We are complicated people. And I don't mind telling you that because I'm an object of grace. And grace is able to keep me from falling, present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy because of Christ in me, the hope of glory. And when Christ becomes your dominant hope, your dominant message, then you can transcend any indictment that comes at you on the part of other human beings as to your identity because your identity is substantially, concretely affirmed in who God said you were. You got to be able to stand on that as a white person. You got to be able to stand on that as a black person and everybody across the spectrum. And we got to make sure that we don't allow the enemy to steal God's glory and create a pseudo church of multi-ethnic communities, you know, diverse societies in the name of a kind of unity without God. Because quite frankly, I've got about five more minutes. I'm glad about that because I could talk to you for three hours. It's so much. We are moving from identity politics relative to the um, intersectionality principles that you guys know. We're 72 genders, and with, from what I heard recently, when it comes to pronouns, we're up to about 185. What a confusing world. 185 pronouns. Call me he, she, it, that, them, that, they. That's pretty tough to have a conversation with all of that. That's called confusion, and it's designed to dislodge your capacity for organizing and for creating uh, boundaries and categories so that you can think rationally and so that you can have a healthy conversation back and forth with people. See, if you and I are talking to people for whom the target is moving every 10, 20, 30 seconds, this is called equivocating. Y'all know something about basic logic. If they're equivocating in their definition of terms, one minute we're agreeing, the next minute we're not agreeing. We can't find unity around those kind of things, but you guys have to, you have to battle at that. We all have to battle at that. We are moving towards transhumanism. I know it's going to be weird. My sister in the back, I'm trying to remember her name back there. She met us, the, the lady right there. What's her name? My sister, what's her name? Yes, ma'am. Susan. Sister Susan. She was saying that she has a problem with talking too much. I said, I'm right behind you. <laughs> Got a lot to say in this crazy world, and Christians should. We should know when to be quiet, but we should know when to stand up and speak. We should be happy that we are full of joy and full of truth and full of certainty and full of clarity and full of humility. You can have all that at the same time. You can be humble and confident at the same time. You can be dependent upon God and at the same time confident that God will work through you at the same time. And you're going to have to be that way going forward because the Marxist system is telling you to shut up and listen to them and you won't be able to talk back. Well, if we, if we submit to that, that kind of fascist, totalitarian, lockdown model, then you and I are going to change significantly internally. Does that make some sense? If we submit to that, that 
approach of shut up and listen to me. It, it destroys your intrinsic capacity for your own epistemological certainty and your own epistemological expression. And it will destroy your faith. It will destroy your faith if all you're doing every time they come up on you, whether in a group or one individual, and tell you to shut up and listen to me, it's going to destroy your faith. And you have to know that. So you and I want to grow in grace. You and I want to grow in a knowledge of God's word. You and I want to grow in love. But we certainly want to grow in understanding all of these matters. Because we want to be able to affirm where things were bad and where things are bad no matter in the church or outside of the church. And we want to stand for truth that because we believe that truth really is the only way forward. And what I loved about the way uh, your pastor put it earlier, this the truth issues in terms of society, in terms of science, in terms of economics, in terms of um, psychology, in terms of a whole lot of disciplines are not exclusive to the church. God has allowed humanity to learn a lot about truth claims that are relevant to us as societies as a large. Does that make sense to you guys? Right. So we can learn something from an atheist professor. Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Weinstein, they went through hell at Evergreen State. Do you guys remember what happened there? Because of critical race theory coming in and its mobbish agenda to destroy all of the professors. Tell them to shut up, submit to what we want to do. And the school basically closed down in about three to five years after that. And that was because Brett and his wife stood up. See, the goal is deconstruction. So the critical race theory, I would say on a pathological level, is like a child that's having a tantrum. And you can build the blocks up for him, the ABCs all the way to Z. See, again, I told you I'm white. And the child will come and tear down all the blocks. Will they not? But they don't know how to put them back together again. And that's where our society is. Mature men and women, we, we can deconstruct because we discern. We're reasonable, we're rational, we're thoughtful, we're disciplined. But by the grace of God and through the truth of God's word, we can put it back together again. That's called understanding. That's called wisdom. That's called building up. Okay, that's the oikodomia. We're called to build up, not to tear down. So where the enemy tears down, we build up. That's what we're called to. That's exactly what we're called to. And that's something that I want to encourage us to understand if you didn't get anything, is there a reason why I didn't go through all of the PowerPoint uh, aspects that, that Alan did is because I could pick up in the room that most of you guys are knowledgeable of this stuff. I'm in California with, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of churches. They could use this presentation in California. But you guys got to take it out these doors. You got to live it joyfully, confidently, boldly in the person of Christ. Let men and women know that you're not Pilate. You know Pontius Pilate. He stood in front of the personification of truth. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the father. What? Full of grace and truth. 
And Jesus says, he that is of God, heareth me. And Pilate, with his relativistic self, said, what? What is true? That's where you and I are today. What is true? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father but by him. And it's the spirit of truth that shows us the person of truth who shows us the father of truth through the word of truth. And see, if we get away from this book, we have no authority. When we get away from the Bible, we have no power. And that's what our churches have been doing for decades, getting away from the book. Entertainment churches. Five-minute soliloquies. See, remember what Paul said? The time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and will turn away their ears from the truth and they will heap up to themselves teachers who will scratch their itch. That's a dermatological metaphor for saying that you got a disease in your hearing. And that's what we are today. But every Christian should have a, have a blood-dipped ear, and a blood-dipped thumb, and a blood-dipped toe. God opens your hearing. He gives you the ability to handle things wisely, and he gives you feet to run the way of the gospel. That's the ministry of the priesthood of the church. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Your pastor teaches you well. One thing I love about our Reformed history is that we went deep in the Bible for many hundreds of years, and we understood from Genesis to Revelation that there was a, a scarlet-colored thread of redemption where Christ is taught all the way through the book. That's what saves people. And Christ is what unifies us too, Brother Allen. Christ is what unifies us, not our doctrinal denominations. I would that men would be much more committed to preaching Christ in the pulpit than maybe practical things. <coughs> Because that's where our unity is, particularly in days where we're being battled against. But even after Christ is preached in the splendors and the beauties of the fullness of his atoning work as our God and Savior, it must have a transformational, efficacious impact in us when we go out the door. This is why missionary work is languishing too. It's true, isn't it, Scott? In certain areas. I could talk about my brothers in Africa. We got a lot of good communities getting down, but in a lot of ways it's languishing, particularly the American church. It's really sad. So again, I want to thank you for an opportunity. It's five minutes. See, in our church, I get about 20 to 25 minutes over the due time. <laughs> but I'm going to stop here, and I'd love to hear some questions from you guys after we do a little lunch. All right, Scott, I hope I did you justice. Oh, we got a sermon today, and it's not even Sunday. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Scott, Pastor Scott. <clears throat> Isn't that where we are? We live in a culture today where the postmodernists are more evangelistic than the church. And as Pastor Jesse just told us, we've got to get up. And we need 
to, as it were, take back the truth. We need to take back the principles that we see in Scripture, how it applies to ourselves individually, how it applies to us as a church, and how it applies to us as a society. Pastor Jesse made a comment, uh, I think it was earlier on in in, uh, what he was sharing with us, is that the freedom we enjoy in Christ is the basis for our freedom society in society. If we love our neighbor, we will take the truths of the scriptures and apply it to the unbelievers around us. And not just within the four walls of our church or our home. And so uh, thank you for that, can you say, call to arms in some ways? Yes. And uh, we, we need to... to um, to stop being that 12,000 that's just sitting around and watching. And we need to be part of the 3,000 um, and, and stand for what is true and right, come what may. Well, we're going to take uh, some time now and uh, fill our bellies. And some of you may be familiar with McBride's Pizza and McBride's Catering. And uh, they are going, uh, they are, I think, unloading as we speak. Uh, some food, and so we will go down and and uh, feast and fellowship for a bit, and then we'll come back uh, afterward uh, in roughly an hour, and uh, then we will um, continue with um, with Pastor Jesse, with Scott Allen, and myself, and um, and hopefully address some more things. We'll also uh, think of some questions for us. I'm sure that there are some things that we've touched on that you want to hear more about. Maybe there are things that we haven't touched on yet that, that you would like to know more about. Those of you who are online, uh, please use the uh, look at the website and use the email that is provided for you if you have some questions. We'll look at those and, and uh, we'll try to uh, address those as well. So uh, let's take a moment then and uh, pray for our lunch and then we can head downstairs. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Um, for the, the, the truth of your word and the, um, the work of our Lord Jesus. We are thankful that he um, has reconciled us to yourself and has uh, given us himself as, as spiritual food. And uh, we thank you uh, that we can feast on the bread of life uh, unto salvation. We, we pray now as we gather Uh, downstairs and we feast uh, together that you would uh, bless the food to us bless our conversation uh, bless our fellowship may it be edifying may it be an encouragement to one another and may you be honored in it all and uh, give us the strength then that we might be able to return here this afternoon and uh, discuss further some of these matters and that we would uh, be better equipped uh, to be faithful to you in these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.